What's your name? Steve Fiziak. Before your recent retirement, what did you do for a living? I was a broadcaster for 47 years doing play-by-play of college football, college basketball, Major League Baseball, you name it. And I just, um, I started at Kansas State University. That was where I graduated. And then from there, went to Hastings, Topeka, Cincinnati, San Francisco, LA, and now back home to Kansas City where I grew up. And how many books have you written? Uh, Five. And I'm on my, I'm actually on my sixth which is part of the Martellino series, which has, takes place in uh, near a town of Lucca, Italy, in the Sergio Valley. As a matter of fact, Stacy and I, my wife and I, just got back from a beautiful vacation in Croatia and Italy, where a week I spent in the Sergio Valley doing research for the book I'm writing now, which is part of the Martellino Luca series. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is the multi-talented Steve Fiziok. And this is super exciting for me because Steve was in the Bay Area when I was in high school. And that was a very informative time for me because I realized I was not going to be an athlete and I wanted to work in sports media. And so I grew up watching him and I've admired his career from a long time. And now we get to learn some of the more intimate details about his career and some of the tough choices he had to make and how it all came together. So Steve Fiziok is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Thank you once again for joining me. But before we kind of get into this too much, as I was preparing my questions, I realized this might sound like an exit interview, and I don't mean it to sound like an exit interview or like a this is your life, but I'm fascinated by your career. And so I, I'm just, um, again, I'm, I'm really excited to dig into how you did all of these things. If I do one fifth of the things you did, I'll be proud of myself. I know because I look back now because it seems like it was just yesterday that I was starting my career. Now, 47 years later, I've decided to retire because I have a fantastic marriage. Love my wife, Stacy. We want to go on a lot more adventures. And I know at the age of 68, I don't have the window of opportunity to do that, that you would at a younger age. So it's really been a fantastic ride. And uh, it started at Kansas State University and then on to Hastings, Nebraska. I really felt that I needed to start small and work my way up. And then Topeka, Kansas for four years, four in Cincinnati, 10 in the Bay Area, and 16 in Southern California. I've spent the last 11 in Kansas City, which is my hometown. Uh, The Royals were my hometown team, and I really feel blessed to have broadcast for my hometown team in the final job I'll ever have in the industry. 
I'm probably missing something, but the Reds, the Indians, the Giants, the Padres, the Angels, the Royals, a bunch of national games for ESPN and TBS. In basketball, I see the Warriors. I see the Vancouver Grizzlies, a whole bunch of college basketball. I always saw you doing Pac-10 games. In the NFL, I got the Bengals, the Rams, a bunch of bowl games, a bunch of college football. You had a stint with Fresno State in addition to your alma mater, Kansas State. So, but when did you feel like this was my break? This is when I really established myself in this industry. I really think, Josh, that it was at Kansas State University because like you, I thought I was a pretty good athlete. Then you go to college and you realize, no, you're not very good at all. And I struggled. I had a 1.75 GPA my first semester. I actually tried to quit school. My mom talked me into coming back. And then my dad went bankrupt, so I lost all my money. I took a year off. And when I came back, it was like, you know what? You love sports. You're not a very good athlete, but you love talking about it. Why don't you try something like play-by-play? And I took one class, a Bob Fiddler's broadcasting class. And he said, whoever sells the most time will be given their opportunity to do junior varsity back in the day. I'm so old that freshmen were ineligible. So you could do the junior varsity Kansas State football games, or you could do the local 1A, the smallest um, classification in the state of Kansas, 1A high school. I didn't think I was very good. So I said, I'll do the high school. Well, Josh, all I can tell you is I did one game and it was lucky high against Wakefield, two small towns. And I walked out of the broadcast booth and my hands were shaking and they weren't shaking, Josh, because it was a great game. They were shaking because I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to do play by play. It was absolutely fascinating doing a story, telling a story live on air, not knowing what is going to take place and trying to make sense of it all to The public. Well, at Kansas State, I did football, basketball, and baseball while I was there, and then uh, moved on to Hastings, Nebraska, where they gave me all kinds of opportunities to do play-by-play. But that was my passion, and I really almost felt like it was an addiction. I could not get enough play-by-play. So if they said, hey, uh, do you want to do a truck and tractor pull? Actually, that was my first assignment with ESPN, and I just fell in love with play-by-play and storytelling, and 47 years later, here I am still telling stories, but in a different way in writing. When you get an assignment that you may not know anything about, like pulling tractors. Yes. I was not preparing to ask you this question, but how do you go about preparing for something that you may know very little about? Well, you remember that movie called Yes Man? Yeah. That was me. Whatever assignment I was asked early in my career, hey, can you do this? I think when I was with uh, WLWT in Cincinnati, I really am not a bowler, but they said, we've got a bowling show on Sunday mornings. Would you like to do it? And I go, absolutely. Do you know much about bowling? Yes, I do. Well, obviously, in the four days before that Sunday assignment, I studied a lot about bowling. But the same thing happened with ESPN. ESPN saw my work when I was doing uh, the Bengals football games and also Uh, the Reds baseball games, and they called me up and they said, hey, we saw your work. We like it. We were wondering if if we could give you an assignment. And I said, absolutely. Thinking that they might hand me a a college football or college basketball game or maybe even a major league. Well, they weren't doing major league baseball at the time, but I just said yes. And they said, well, there's a truck and tractor pull in Philadelphia, and I am not a car person at all. And of course, I said, yes, I can. And I did that. 
they offered me another assignment. It was another truck and tractor pull in Pittsburgh. And my third assignment was doing a college basketball game. So I felt I, I, I was graduating along the way and then spent seven years with ESPN. So you never know what an assignment is going to lead to. That's why I encourage young people in our industry to always say yes, whether it's starting in a small town like I did or uh, taking on an assignment that you have no experience in at all. I want to ask you a couple of questions about Cincinnati. And I love that I have the subscription to newspapers.com. I found all these cool little tidbits. And I want to start with, you got hired at a TV station in Cincinnati and you replaced a man by the name of Todd Donahoe. And Todd was such a nice guy that number one, he went out of his way to help you get acclimated to your new job, his old job. And then number two, he introduced you to the woman who you've been married to for four decades now. Is this correct? It is true. And Todd is one of the nicest people I've ever met. To this day, we're still dear friends. He has since moved to Kansas City because his uh, children are here. And Todd and Paula and Stacy and I still get together. But the funny story is I was working at um, WLWT. I was the sports director there. And our intern comes running into the office. And back in the day, you didn't have the clickers. You just grabbed this, the, the dial and went. <clears throat> well, he switched over to Sports Time Cable, where Todd worked, but also where a young lady named Stacy St. James worked. And he said, hey, Fizz, have you seen the girl on Sports Time? And I go, no. And he goes, <clears throat> and there she is. And I go, oh, my gosh, she's beautiful. <laughs> well, immediately, I have a crush on her. Unfortunately, I find out that she has a boyfriend. So I'm one of those people that is very respectful. So I do not approach that situation, although I do see her in public several times, once with, with my uh, news anchor, Jerry Springer. The two of us went out to get a cocktail after a sportscast and newscast at uh, The Blind Lemon. And here comes Stacy out with her boyfriend. And I said, hello. And that's all I said. The next time I had to pick up something from Todd Donahoe at sports time, a... Uh, video of a ball game that, that I needed. And she came walking through the uh, lobby and she saw me and she said, hello. And I said, hello, but I, I was a little nervous. And as she's, it's just the two of us in this room. And I'm saying, say something, <laughs> say something. And sure enough, she turns around and walks and I go, you idiot, why you say something? Well, fast forward to her birthday on November 19th, 1984, Todd calls me up and he said, hey, Fizz, a group of us are getting together at Barleycorns. Uh, I'd love to see you. And he doesn't say that Stacy's going to be there. He just says, uh, I'd, I'd like to see you. Had it been anyone else, Josh, I wouldn't have gone. But Todd was such a wonderful person and handled his exit and my entrance to WLWT. Because remember, he was fired and I took his job. Now, he knew that someone was going to take his job. And he goes, I'll help you out in any capacity as possible. Well, he went out of his way to help me. And had it been anyone else, because I'm not a night person, I don't go to bars, I would not have gone. But Todd invited me, so I went. And I went down to this uh, Barleycorns um, bar, and she was there. And I, I did not mess up this time. I grabbed a chair and pulled it over, sat down next to her. And Todd tells a story later. He tells the story all the time that... <laughs> It was like every single light in Barleycorns was turned off except this spotlight on Steve and Stacy. They were absolutely, and it was love at first sight. And it has been 37 marvelous years. We were married 10 months later. 
I love that story so much. I, I love the details, which is one of the hallmarks of, of your career too. Also then that story, you said the name Jerry Springer. What was yeah. it like before Jerry Springer was almost a cartoon character on a daytime show and when he was just a newsman? He was one of the smartest or he is one of the smartest and funniest people I've ever been around. He's also very thoughtful. And at the end of every newscast, he would do a commentary. And most often it was a commentary on the goodness in society, something that he found good about Cincinnati, some philanthropic message, or let's say a nurse who had helped out uh, an individual, and he would do a commentary. And I, somewhere in my archives, I have a commentary that he did on me when I left for San Francisco, and it was so wonderful, but he was a fantastic gentleman, one of the smartest people, like I said, and I really believe that he had a great future in politics had he not chosen the route because he was a guy who did care about people, who did care about the society, who did care about making things better. And he was wonderful to work with. And uh, um, we went from last in the ratings to, to number one. And that's actually what led me to San Francisco. I want to talk about San Francisco, but first, one other question about um, that I saw on newspapers.com that I want to follow up on. Apparently, you got married on the day that Pete Rose tied Ty Cobb for most hits in baseball history, and so you had to delay the honeymoon. Is this correct? Yes, because uh, for some reason, I guess a member of our family or a member of Stacy's family could not be there in October. To this day, we go, why did we do it on September 7th? Because that's crazy. We should have never done that because that's baseball season. Anyway, we did. We made it on September 7th. We set the date and the television station said, station said, I'm sorry, Steve, but if Pete Rose is going for the hit record and he hasn't gotten it yet, you can't go on your honeymoon. And I was, it was my first year broadcasting the Reds, maybe my second year. It was 1985. And I actually have a baseball because I went to Pete back in June of 85. And I said, just jokingly, I said, Hey, Pete, what, when do you think you'll get the record? You know, it's a stupid question. Right. And he immediately answers August 23rd. And I go, what? Why would you say August 23rd? And he goes, well, Fizz, I'm 46 years old. I'll probably hit about 260 to 265. I'm only playing against right-handed pitchers now. So I did the math. And you might remember he likes numbers. Right. <laughs> and so he says August 23rd. And I go, well, that's crazy. So I grab a baseball and I sign it, Stacy, will you marry me? And the other side, I have Pete Wright, but not until I get the hit. <laughs> and the greatest part about that signature, Josh, is that Pete Rose misspelled until. He spelled it I-N-T-I-L. But that made the signature even more awesome. So we go on. August 23rd passes. He's about 10, 10 hits shy of the record. Um, we go to Chicago. Um, he ties the record there. Meantime, I leave for one day to get married on September 7th. And then the two of us fly back immediately to do the ball games with the Reds. Uh, and Pete goes 0 for 4 on Monday, facing a right-hander. Tuesday, he does not play because the left-hander's pitching. And then on Wednesday, September 11th, and before you know, the tragedy of 9-11, 9-11 always meant to me the day Pete Rose broke Ty Cobb's hit record. And so he sets the record. Of course, our honeymoon has been delayed four days. And so now it's about, we're going for three days. And I turned to Stacy because she's in the broadcast booth and I go, 
you know, because the place is going crazy. Pete got the record and the uh, Riverfront Stadium's going nuts. And I go, isn't this going to be a great story in the future? And she goes, yeah, I've got <laughs> the best wife in the world. And um, as a matter of fact, when I took the job in San Francisco, we had just adopted our first child, Ryan, who's now grown up and married and has given us three beautiful granddaughters. But I was given an ultimatum because we had gone from last in the ratings to number one in Cincinnati. And my boss said, I don't want you doing games anymore. I want you here doing our nightly sportscast because we're number one now. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do play by play. And I drove home and I'm thinking, you're a husband, you're a father, you need a job. So I'm either getting this job that's offering me six figures to work as the sports director or I'm fired. I, I did have an individual in the Bay Area, Kevin O'Brien, you may have heard of him. He was the general manager at KTVU and he had seen my work and he had kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, if you ever come out here, I'll give you uh, vacation relief work or let you work one day a week. And I went home and told my wife what the situation was. And she goes, well, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to do play by play. And she goes, well, that's what we have to do because I don't want to live with an unhappy man. And Josh, it was like a huge weight was taken off my shoulders. Had my wife said, no, you're a husband, you're a father, you need to keep this job. This is six figures. I would have kept the job. And I'm a, I'm a person of faith. And that was a moment where both of us let go, let God. And it was amazing when we got to the Bay Area, how everything fell into place. I uh, worked one day a week at KTVU, and then I did vacation relief uh, radio work at KGO Radio. Um, then I got a job with, uh, I mean, within two months, I was able to get the play-by-play -play job with the Fresno State Bulldogs, and that was an amazing story in itself. And then in August, only three months in the Bay Area, Kevin O'Brien calls me in and says, I want you to be part of our broadcast team with the Giants the rest of the way. And I'm going, that doesn't happen. No one moves into a, a, a position to do play-by-play -play in the middle of a season. And the Giants were really having a fantastic year. Well, I joined the team in uh, August, and I'm one of the broadcasters with Gary Park, Dwayne Kuyper, and Joe Morgan. And of course, the Giants win the West that year, and I have the call. And that was a remarkable moment. And when the season ended, Kevin fires uh, Gary Park and names me his sports director. And I did that for two years. And that led to the Warriors, which led to ESPN and, and beyond. But it was just amazing, let go, let God experience, where we took the chance, moved to the Bay Area, and everything fell into place. And as my wife and I say now, like, were we out of our minds? That could have gone disastrously wrong, but it didn't. And here we are, um, for, you know, some four decades later, and uh, just loving every moment and every memory. I, I think there's really something there about betting on yourself, but I think there's also, I mean, we can look back on that, on that story of how it did work out, but before it did work out how it did, how much doubt as you're driving across country or in those initial months before these things start to line up, are you questioning yourself or just doubting whether or not this is going to work out? I only doubted myself years later, like, what the heck was I thinking? But at the time, it was just an adventure. These three people, a husband, a wife, and a six-month-old daughter at the time, 
went off on this adventure. We got this tiny little apartment in San Ramon, California. And it was an amazing experience because everything fell into place. I mean, even how we got out there, my brother works for a produce company and he called me up one day and he goes, Hey, I'm, I'm uh, unloading a, a shipment of lettuce in New York city. And I've got an empty load in the way back. If you want, I can pick up your furniture for free and haul it out. Then I go, you can. So he did that. It was just amazing how things happen. Then a friend of mine, Roger Blamire, who's been a big inspiration in my life. He calls me up at the time. He was the um, radio TV director of the Golden State Warriors, but he calls me up the first month I'm there and he says, Steve, I've, I've told uh, a gentleman by the name of Howard Zuckerman, who has a production company who does football and basketball for Fresno State. Um, they need a play-by-play -play guy. Why don't you um, apply for the job? So I called Howard and he said, I'm sorry, it's been filled. And so I said, darn it, rats, I don't have a job and, and I, I really needed something like this. This would have been great. So a week passes and Roger says, did you call Howard? And I go, yeah, but he said um, they filled the position. He goes, no, they haven't. Call somebody else. So I called the sports information director of Fresno State, Scott Johnson. And I say, Mr. Johnson, this is Steve Fiziak. I've applied for your play-by-play -play position. And I was wondering if you're interested. And Scott's reply is, yes, Steve, I have your resume in front of me. And I see that you've done the NFL and Major League Baseball. And quite frankly, we can't afford you. And I said, Scott, I will get in my car right now. I will drive down to Fresno, California, and I will accept any offer you put on the table. And he goes, you will? And I said, yes. And that's the yes man story. So he said, how about tomorrow morning? So the next morning, I wake up early. I drive down to Fresno. I think it was a four-hour drive through the Thule fog, probably. <laughs> and they, they lowball me up, obviously, with the offer. But I go, yes, I'll take it. And... And, and, and that led to a great friendship between Scott and myself and great friends that I met at Fresno State and their football and basketball program. Jim Sweeney, who was a fantastic football coach. Um, Gary Colson, who's still a friend to this day, yeah. was a tremendous basketball coach for Fresno State. But that allowed me to gain that experience and also develop my resume that I could share and give to the Golden State Warriors when they hired me a few years later. And that led me to ESPN. So it's amazing what happens when you just say yes. I might bounce around here, but since you just mentioned the Warriors, I found this little tidbit that you once did Warriors play-by-play -play, and your analyst was Ronnie Lott, the football player. What was it like calling an NBA game with an active NFL player as your analyst? Well, Ronnie and I actually worked together later in a, on a show called Hardcore Football. And it was with Bill Moss, myself, and Ronnie. And Ronnie, to this day, in my opinion, excuse me, he's one of the greatest leaders I've ever seen on a football field. And um, I would see him at uh, Warriors games all the time. And we would, we would chat. Um, here's a funny story about Ronnie, because Bill Walsh absolutely loved him. He told me one time, he said, Fizz, here's um, my halftime speech. If, if the 49ers are playing poorly and our defense is playing poorly, here's my halftime speech. And he goes, I go into the locker room. I go to the men's room. I sit on the toilet and I listen to Ronnie Lott absolutely rail through every single player. He goes, he was an unbelievable leader. He lifted our team up in times where we really needed him. And he said, quite frankly, 
there were countless times we would go back out after being down by 10 to 14 points and that defense would play out of the minds. And he said a lot of it had to do with Ronnie Lott's leadership. Wow. I love it. Here's another story that I enjoyed uh, learning about. There was a celebrity roast for Willie Mays and it was going to raise money for charity. And you were one of those who were invited to be one of the roasters, but you just couldn't bring yourself to roast Willie Mays. So I guess it wasn't a very good roast because no one wanted to roast the great Willie Mays. No, not only was it from Willie Mays and then there was another one for Rick Barry and um, both Willie Mays and Rick Barry were heroes when I was growing up. I mean, uh, down at Old Municipal Stadium in Kansas City when they had the Kansas City Omaha Kings. I remember going down and watching the Warriors versus uh, the Kings and uh, Rick Barry. I think it may have been the year they won the world championship, but he had an incredible game, 35 points, like 11 rebounds and nine assists. And so I was kind of starstruck around him. So I could not be critical of a guy I consider one of the greatest baseball players of all time in Willie Mays and one of the greatest basketball players of all time in, in Rick Barry. So I was more along the lines of just um, loving on them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I saw this other uh, cute story that involved uh, probably your first day on the set at KTVU with Dennis Richmond. And I always loved Dennis Richmond, I love the way that he would say San Francisco. He just said it with just such such grace and dignity. And I guess he asked how to pronounce your name. And then he said, well, do you th- have you ever thought about changing it? And you mentioned something about, well, my wife's last name is St. James. Maybe I should use her name. And then Dennis said, well, you've got 30 seconds to decide. <laughs> and I'm so glad I stayed with Physioc. I know it's a weird name to pronounce, but I've met so many incredible people along the way. As a matter of fact, there was a Steve Physioc back in the 1930s, uh, a, a Los Angeles writer did the story because he had read about it, that there was a Steve Physioc and we are related. He's probably my third uncle, granduncle or something like that. But he was the first ambidextrous pitcher in minor league baseball in the 1930s. And his name was Steve Fiziak from Baltimore, Maryland. I had no idea, but they did the story with this old gentleman who was in his 90s and this young man in his 30s, because I was, I think it was my first or second year with the Angels. And this gentleman from the Orange County Register called me up and he said, Have, do you know of the Steve Fiziak who was a, a baseball player in minor league baseball? And I go, have no idea. And I, I, I called my mom and she said, oh, that's probably your third uncle on your father's side, whatever. But, but, but it was a fascinating story. Oh, my goodness. That is super cool. Super cool. Um, 1989 World Series, the earthquake, October 17th, 5.04 p.m. Where were you and what are your biggest memories of those minutes and hours and weeks that followed? I was still home because my assignment was to to do the post game. And I figured if I left really early, I'd be catching all of that horrible traffic going over uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, going to the uh, uh, Candlestick Park. So I I just stayed back figuring, you know, I'll I'll catch the first part of the game at KTVU on TV and then catch the last four or five innings. Well, obviously uh, the earth quake happens. We, we feel the shake at our home. Um, I call 
KTBU and I go, what's going on? And they said, well, we don't know if there'll be a sports cast, but you better come in. So I did go in and then uh, I was there probably about 20 minutes and they just said, Steve, there'll be no sports tonight, obviously, mm-hmm. because that's when the information came in about how damaging that earthquake was. So they sent me home and I don't know if we did sports for maybe another week, but that was really, really a tragic situation in the, the Bay Area. And, and I knew so many giants very well and I knew their families. And so I, I was worried about how they were doing at Candlestick Park, but everybody uh, there was safe. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting about your career is is sort of the the shift that has happened in this industry. And so, I mean, you've already mentioned how you really wanted to do play-by-play and not local sports. But when you were doing local sports, that's when local sports still mattered. But you would get, you know, five minutes or something at the end of um, the, uh, the, the newscast. What were some of the things that you did like and some of the other things that you didn't like um, back when local TV sports did matter? Well, I'm a person who wanted to be at the event. And uh, it bothered me that when I was doing a sports cast, I'd say, hey, there was a great game at Candlestick Park or the Oakland Coliseum tonight, and all I can show you is two plays. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to be there in that broadcast booth, broadcasting for three hours, telling fans about the ball game, whether it was the Warriors, whether it was the A's or the Giants or the 49ers. I wanted to be out there with those teams and and, and be part of that action. So um, really... Every assignment I ever took on, they said, we'll let you do Kansas State football and basketball if you'll be our uh, sportscaster at, at, at WIBW in Topeka. We'll let you be uh, we'll let you do the Bengals and the Reds if you'll do, be our sports director at WLWT. We'll let you do college basketball and Giants games at uh, KTVU if you'll be our sportscaster. So it was really a means to an end. And the end was play-by-play, and I really didn't go full-time play-by-play until getting to the Bay Area with the Warriors and ESPN, and then I could say no more to uh, sportscasting and and only play-by-play. With all of the different analysts that you've worked with and all the different sports, what have you learned about the most important things to mesh with that analyst to make the broadcast uh, as good as it can be? Well, as I've told my color commentators, I said, and I hate to use the word star, but I do believe that in radio, the play-by-play guy is the star. He's the lead broadcaster. But on television, as I've told Rex Hudler and as I've told many of my broadcasters, Marcus Johnson, Tom Ramsey, I said, it's my job to make you the star because the reason you're sitting next to me is because you played the game. I did not. I can tell you what happened. You need to tell me why it happened. And so I, I, I really felt if I had a gift, it was giving them time to tell the why. Um, if, if the ball was struck and hit for a home run, I would say gone home run Royals lead it three to two. And I would not say another word until that home plate was touched. And then I knew that the director was probably going to go to replay and Rex would take it on from there. And I wouldn't say a thing until Rex was finished and probably the pitcher was ready to throw to the next batter. So I think uh, I've always felt there are are three broadcasters when you're doing a ball game. There's the play-by-play broadcaster, there's the color commentator, and they're the fans. 
And uh, you and I both know that probably the guy who worked that the best was the great Vince Scully, where he really allowed the game to breathe. And I learned a lot from listening to Vince Scully to let the game breathe. Give me advice that you would give to younger students. And I know that you've said about yes and how you always said yes, but as much as the industry has changed since you broke into it, um, what would be your advice to someone who is in college now or just left college about breaking into the industry? Well, don't be afraid of starting small because I think a lot of young people think that if I go to a small town, I'll never get out of there. That's not the case. If you're talented, believe me, they will find you. But when I do career days at colleges and high schools, I, I usually will go be on time. There's four things that you can do as an independent contractor. Be on time, be prepared, be easy to work with, and be enthusiastic. And I think if you can do those four things, it doesn't matter if you're an insurance agent or if you're a general manager of a baseball team or if you're a player or if you're a broadcaster, if you can do those four things, you make yourself valuable to your organization. Every single boss wants somebody that they can count on. And if they can count on you being on time, if if the producer says, be there at four o'clock, I better be there at four o'clock or I'm calling them up saying, I'm in a traffic jam, I'll be there at 4.05. Um, and usually during the day, I prepare. I wanna get to the assignment absolutely ready to broadcast. If they decide to move the game from seven to four, I want to be ready at four. And then be a good teammate. Be supportive of the audio guy in the truck and the video operators and the director and the producer and the cameraman and be respectful. You are just one member of this team. And the other thing is enthusiasm. Be enthusiastic. Um, bring joy to this sporting event. And I've always felt the really talented guys make a seven yard run more exciting than a three yard run and a 50 yard run way more exciting than a seven yard run. And that's what I really respect listening to some of the great broadcasters like Joe Buck right now. He, I think he's fantastic. And, uh, and some of the young broadcasters that are coming up right now and, and whether it's the major leagues, the NFL or the NBA. Speaking of young broadcasters, what's your advice for Jake Eisenberg? He's going to oh. be taking your place for the Royals. I've gotten to know Jake at the baseball winter meetings. I remember when he was emailing me and asking me to critique his work and all oh, they grow up so fast. What's your advice for Jake? I think he's fantastic. I really don't have any advice for him. When I called to congratulate him, I, I, I did uh, recall, I said, Jake, I want you to know I was once sitting in your chair, so excited because I was getting my first Major League Baseball assignment. And now I'm at the end. And I said, I'm going to share with you what my mom shared with me. And so I told Jake, I said, my mom said the two most important decisions you'll ever make in your life are, what do you want to be when you grow up? And who do you want to spend the rest of your life with? And I said, Jake, I have hit a home run on both of those. I absolutely love play-by-play. I married my soulmate and, and he turns to me and he goes, well, he doesn't turn to me because we were <laughs> on the phone, but he said, Hey, Fizz, I, I've got to let you know that my fiance is sitting right next to me and she heard your words and she smiled. And I said, Jake, uh, uh, I, I think you're an amazing talent. Uh, I'm really excited about your future. And uh, I think the Kansas city Royals are only a beginning for you. I think he is that gifted. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Let, let me go back a little bit with your career because it's really easy to say that he was with this team and this team and he was with the Angels and then he moved on to the Royals, but there's a gap there. And even if it's only a few months, what do you recall about when the when you're informed that you're no longer going to be broadcasting for the Angels and just your thought process about what's next? Is this the end or what is going to be next before you ended up learning that next would be the Royals? That's another um, example of why I love my wife so much, because once again, uh, I was at the end of my contract, but I was completely assuming that I would be back with the Angels. I had been a, 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 I just spent 14 years with them, got along great with management, but it was also during the uh, uh, 2008 uh, economy really falling down. And, and a lot of people were being let go within the organization. I just didn't think I would be or Rex would be. But that said, when we found out, obviously, I was a little devastated because I was 54, I think, maybe, maybe 55 or 56. But, you know, as soon as you find out, you drive home and the first person I called was my wife. And the second person I called was my agent. But my mind, my ego is telling me, are you too old? Will you ever get a job in the industry again? And uh, I, I went home and my wife meets me at the front door and she says, with a big smile on her face, what cool new adventure is ahead for us? And I'm thinking there's another occasion where she lifted this big rock because we had children uh, going to college at the time. Um, you know, we were paying for their education. Uh, I was a little concerned. I did have, you know, my job doing the Pac-10 because Roy Hamilton, who was the executive director of uh, executive producer, I should say, of Fox Sports Net at the time, he had me. I mean, I, I'd been with Roy for a long time, and I just loved the man. And he had me doing college football and college basketball, so I continued doing that. I actually put together a radio show for the Pac-12 network on radio, which went from nine stations to 30 stations. And we had all the big markets in the West, Denver and Salt Lake City and Phoenix and San Francisco and LA and Portland and Seattle. Um, so, so we were able to put things together well enough to just basically break even until the Royals called. And they called very quickly and they said, "Would at first they said, would you ever be interested? And I said, absolutely. And they said, well, we've got some contracts to to work through but we just wanted to know of your interest and then of course they hired us in 2012 both rex and i had i don't know how many times two broadcasters have gone from one team to another together but uh of the over 200 analysts i've worked with i've worked with one the longest and that's rex hudler and he is a dear friend who only lives about a mile from me yeah, uh, I've not spent a lot of time with Rex, but he's one of those that you just remember instantly. Just such a special person. Uh, I want to ask you about your books. Um, you've written historical fiction books. Uh, I've written nonfiction. I've tried to write fiction. It's just not in me. Maybe that's the journalist in me that gets stuck when I can't pursue the truth. What is it about historical fiction as a genre that you like? Well, like I said earlier, I'm not one of those guys who goes to a bar after a game. I love to read. So when, I, when, they, when I'm on the airplane or in the hotel room alone, usually I'm reading a book. And usually it's the classics, whether it's um, 
whether it's Hemingway or Steinbeck or Wallace Stegner, but I also like a good fictional tale too. I think Diana Gabaldon, who wrote Outlander, is one of America's best authors. And I've developed a friendship with her in recent years. And I just think she is dynamic. And so I've been moved by the written word. And I'm one of those rare guys who's a broadcaster who wants to be a writer. And there are a lot of writers who want to be broadcasters. And I did a little, little bit in reverse. And it actually took place after reading all these classics. My wife and I were in, in Italy in 2006 vacationing, and I was staying in Southern Tuscany. And I woke up one night after a vivid dream. This is no joke. It's one of those woo-woo moments. And it was in the dream, a great walled city, two families trying to produce a great wine. This young lady came from uh, town to help them out. And uh, there, there was a lot of tension going on. And this woman was helping them through their difficulties. Well, instead of going back to sleep, I went to the bathroom, wrote down the outline, then Stacy and I vacation. And I tell her about my dream. And she goes, wow, that's pretty cool. So we go to Florence and Venice. And then we're meeting three other couples in this town of Luca, Italy. I've never been there, never seen a picture. And as we're driving into Luca, Italy, I go, oh my gosh, Stacy, this is it. These are the walled city. This is the walled city I saw in my dreams. Well, I'm interested now. So I buy a book of the history of Luca, and it's a fascinating town, three walls, uh, pre-Christian walls, medieval walls, the Renaissance walls, which you can walk on today that took over 105 years to, to be built. But it was at one time the number two banking capital in all of Europe. They had a lot of money. They were at the end of the silk trade. But in over 2,000 years of these walls, the walls were never militarily tested. Nobody ever attacked Luca, even though they put these incredible ramparts together, spent millions and millions of lira trying to protect themselves, defend themselves. And the psychobabble in my mind said, do we do that as human beings as well? Do we build these invisible walls around us to protect us from no one invading us, no one hurting us? So I just thought, what if I came up with a story? Uh, two families trying to produce a great Sangiovese wine in Italy's dark days of World War I, the rise of fascism, and World War II, made it a love story slash historical fiction. And my characters, each of them had a bit of unforgiveness that they were holding on to. And they, they, they did not know how to release that. And so my woman, a protagonist, Isabella Carolla, who was raised in a convent, comes to the uh, vineyard. She has a, a skill in gardening, and she helps them she helps them slowly break down their walls of unforgiveness, each one of them. And she, well, I'm not going to tell any more of the story, but it's a love story slash historical fiction. And the surprising thing, this book. So when you get finished with it, Josh, you're, you're all worried going, oh, gosh, this stinks. This is really not very good. But I, I, I hired a development, developmental editor to help me, you know, process it, make it better, make the character stronger, where she gave me ideas and thoughts. And then I uh, pretty much rewrote the entire book. And then she said, I think it's time to send it to reviewers. And you're going, uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, I get my first review and I go, hey, they liked it. Hey, five stars. Whoa. And then that book won the 2018 Reader's Favorite Award for Best Historical Fiction in 2018. And the sequel, Above the Walls, which takes place in 1938 to 1945, after Mussolini writes his Manifesto of Race, solidifying his union with Adolf Hitler, how it affected the agriculture workers, 
the vineyard operators in the in the valley of in Tuscany and the Sergio Valley. And it too is a love story slash historical fiction. And that one won the award in 2019 for best historical fiction for readers favorite. And then the last two books I wrote were something that was, I had been thinking about probably for, uh, I don't know, 25 years and about a Native American boy who is, all, who is not only a great baseball player, but a wildlife tracker. And why I took those, a lot of people go, why would you do that? And I've always been fascinated by individuals who have higher excellence when they're alone. Uh, I'm drawn to team sports because you have to leave your ego in the locker room and learn to play as a team. But there are individuals who have heightened greatness when they're alone. And I thought pitchers are one of those profession. They're on a mound. They're alone. They're, it's a crisis situation. Runners are on base. They're taking lead. People are yelling at them from the dugout, from the stands. Only they can get out of the mess they're in. And the great ones that I've seen, like, let's say, Greg Maddox or Bob Gibson, have this incredible ability to narrow their focus and really deal with the moment, the catcher's glove, and the ability to throw a ball with velocity, with movement, incredible location. And Maddox, I thought, was one of my favorites to do that. But this young man is also a wildlife tracker. He works for his family's outfitting company. And that is another profession where your heightened ability is off the charts when you're alone. Your ability to read nature, to open your awareness bubble, to read sights, sounds, smells, but also intuition. And this young man has that. Unfortunately, uh, the owner of a private military company wants to use his tracking skills for his uh, company in, Afghan in Afghanistan and blackmails the young man. And now I'm telling the story. That's another thing. <laughs> but that's Walks with the Wind. And that book, interestingly enough, and this is a funny story, won the grand prize of the Writer's Digest Award this past year in 2021. And the funny story about that is I get this email that says, I've won, you've won the grand prize. So I'm thinking, oh, this has got to be like Publishers Clearinghouse. <laughs> this has to be. So I actually copied and paste this award that they said I won. I found out who the managing editor of Writer's Digest was. I emailed her and, sa and, and said, hey, I received this email from you. Is this like Publishers Clearinghouse where I might be a winner? And she immediately got back to me. And she goes, ha, 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 Steve. No, you're the winner. And I won $5,000 uh, feature article in their magazine. They flew me to New York to meet with agents. And that was a really cool experience. But I'm still learning all the time about writing. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm incredibly moved by the great writers, whether it's Steinbeck or, or Diana Gabaldon or Wallace Stegner or Kristen Hanna and uh, Sue Monk Kidd. I just, um, Jody Bacolt. I mean, there, there's so many great writers I really enjoy reading, but very few of them are sports writers. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I, I, I like to get away from sports. A Renaissance. I read media guides. Yeah. A renaissance man. There, there's a few things that came to mind as you're telling th this really cool story. Number one is that writing is rewriting, right? Mm -hmm. In order to be a really good writer, you have to be willing to delete and rewrite. Number two, I, I think that in this entire podcast, but especially that last story, we can see why you've had the career. And that is your energy and passion and enthusiasm when you get involved in something. Um, and so it, it's just really neat. And, and I love it when people kind of um, 
you know, where you can't put them in a box, right? It's really easy to put all of us sports people like in a box. And, and I like it when you're like, no, there's there's more to me than just calling home runs and strikeouts and, and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I can't wait to, to to read your work and and to see what's next for you. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know we're, we're this has already gone longer than what I was, what I thought. What are you going to miss about baseball? What are you going to miss about play-by-play? I mean, we can, we can sense your passion for life and what's next. What are you going to miss? The relationships. Quite frankly, Josh, I'm not going to miss the games as much. I'm going to miss the people. Ryan Lefevre is a dear friend of mine who's the lead broadcaster for the Kansas City Royals. Rex Hudler, obviously, is one of my best friends in the in- industry. Jeff Montgomery, Joel Goldberg, Denny Matthews, Steve Stewart, Eric Guthmey, my producer engineer. They're all fantastic friends. And also the people that I've worked with in the past, whether it was Marcus Johnson or Tom Ramsey or the athletes. I think one of my probably my favorite story in my long career was a moment my first week with the Golden State Warriors. And we're playing the Los Angeles Lakers in a preseason game. I think it's game number one. And we're staying at, at the Westin on Century Boulevard. And Sharunas Marshallonis is with us. He's a 6'5 guard from the former Soviet Union in Russia. And Uwe Blob from Germany. And, and, and Uwe spoke a little bit of Russian and a little bit of, uh, uh, obviously, a little very good English and also excellent German. And Jim Peterson and another, I think it may have been Greg Papa and I went to a sports bar at the Marriott Hotel, which is across the street from the Westin and about a couple of blocks away. And as we watch the game and leave, um, here's these four tall guys. I'm six foot three, Uwe Blob, seven three. Jim Peterson, uh, one of our forwards, is six ten. Uh, Sharunas Marshallonis is six five, and he is ripped. And uh, Greg Pop is with us as well. He's not as tall as the rest of us. But Sharunas turns to me, and here's a guy who was raised in the then Soviet Union and Russia. And he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, you teach me words to God bless America. I said, I beg your pardon? He says, I want to know the words to God bless America. So I start singing. And all of a sudden, all of these tall guys are walking down Century Boulevard singing at the top of our lungs, God bless America. <laughs> and it was all inspired by a Russian. Yeah, He loved America. He loved um, freedom. He wanted to be part of it. And he was just an awesome athlete. And uh, whenever I talk with him, even though he sp- spoke very limited English, he was a man I wanted to get to know. And that's what I'll miss the most, those moments where those memories that made uh, a difference in your life, where you look back and go, you know, I know we're having challenges right now between the United States and Russia, but there are good people mm-hmm. and we've got to connect with them. And here's a young man who I think he's the sports sports premier of the Lithuanian sports movement, Sharunas Marshallonis back home in his country. But I'll always remember that moment when he tapped me on the shoulder and said, you teach me the words to God bless America. That's what I'll miss the most. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, th- this has been such a treat, even better than, than I thought it would be. Um, you know, congratulations uh, on a wonderful career and everything that is next uh, for you and for Stacy and for your family as you uh, embark on the next chapter of your life, Steve. Josh, thank you so much. And if I might, 
If anyone is interested in the walls of Luke above the walls, Walks with the Wind and the sequel, Catching the Wind, they can find those books at Amazon.com. And also Rex and I wrote this book, the, Are You a Baseball Guy? And uh, it's selling quite well around Christmas time. So that's another reason I, I'll, I'll miss the game. But he's, he's one of my best friends in the industry, Rex Hudler, the Wonder Dog. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much, Steve. Once again, that was Steve Fiziok, and this is Life Around the Seams. 